Good morning, LCM. Good morning. Today is Sunday, February 20th, 2022. As your pastors, we would like to admonish and encourage you this morning that this present time that we're living in is what the Bible calls the last days, continually spurring us on to the revelation that the time is short and our time to stamp God's will on the earth before we go to be with him is also exceedingly short. Tune your ears into the following passage from Romans 13 as we get started in the word this morning together. Turn with us to Romans 13 and we're going to begin in verse 11. Romans 13, 11, it says this, and do this, understanding the present time. Everybody say the present time. The hour has come for you to wake up from your slumber because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. The night is nearly over. The day is almost here. So let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Church, the title of our message this morning is the devastation of a nation. We want you to understand the present time that we are living in right now so that you will not be found in a uh, slumber in the midst of these times. Your salvation, church. Somebody say, my salvation. my salvation. Your salvation is nearer now than when you first started this race, than when you first believed. With this in mind, we wanted to start off today by clinching with the devastating reality of what is going on around us in this present time. In this present time, faithfulness has become the order of our day. On the precipice of all-out war with Ukraine, Russia has amassed intimidating forces numbering almost 200,000 Russian troops. They've arrayed themselves for what seems to be an inevitable onslaught. The Ukrainian president, Zelensky, has decided to abandon his own country and to set himself up, to set up shop in Germany so that he might preserve his own life while abandoning the almost 3 million citizens that live in the capital city of Ukraine. Somebody say that's faithless. that's faithless. Not to be outdone, though, because of the intimidation of the present that's in the daunting tasks that lie before us. Our current administration has sent the illustrious vice president as the spokesperson to con boldly convey our intentions to strongly sanction President Putin's Russia with a swift and severe kind of measure, should they decide to attack one of our national allies. This course of action regarding this intimidating task is after the tremendous success that the Vice President has achieved dealing with our own border issues. So we've sent her to deal with a much more intimidating border issue. <laughs> I know what you may be thinking. Where is our venerable President in all of these dealings? Our Commander-in-Chief, had one meeting on his official docket on Friday before calling it a weekend. If our knowledge of history is anywhere close to correct, which we kind of think that it is, it is, we believe that he's likely heading to Delaware to enjoy all the ice cream sundaes that he could possibly desire. Church, the tremendous amounts of anxiety that the populace of our nation has been experiencing is right in line with the 40-year high of the inflation that their wallets are experiencing. 
mounting pressures regarding the economy, the price of gasoline, and even the, abil- the availability of avocados have got people going out of their minds. This is serious stuff, people. Yet instead of our administration admitting that our current direction is leading us into recession and destruction and reaching out for greater revelation and expertise, all dissenting opinions are swiftly crushed. There is an overarching lack of trust, lack of trust in the team, lack of trust in the process with which to make and uphold laws while refusing to work together to accomplish these goals. In fact, you could define our current culture as an our way or the highway kind of mentality, while all other types of culture are simply canceled. Mm, This has been the normal method of dealing with all of those who they do not agree with. Speaking of trying to crush or cancel or change those that you can't control, consider our neighbors to the north. Mere days after seizing dictator-like power through a declared state of emergency in order to handle peaceful protests in the capital with those known as the Freedom Convoy, Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, which sounds like every chef that I ever met in Louisiana, for sure. (laughs) The Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau has begun to use arrests. He is seizing people's personal bank accounts, using pepper spray and club carrying riot police on horseback to trample the rights and freedoms of those voicing dissent over his ongoing draconian COVID measures that are actually strangling the prosperity of their own country there in Canada. Lastly, while Texas has long since moved beyond mandatory mass mandates, and praise the Lord for that, other major states and cities are just now beginning to lessen these scientifically ineffective measures, declaring that, quote-unquote, the science has now changed. Even while the school districts that they manage keep the kids masked up. This doesn't make any sense. This deception of our times is as obvious as a child with cookie crumbs all over their face. They're declaring their own innocence while the evidence of deception is all over them for all others to clearly see. Now, as we are gripping with the reality of what's going on, we have a a slide to help you summarize what our present time, these devastating days that we are in, and these are the core issues that we have here. What we've talked about just in a quick summary of the world events, we see faithlessness that is absolutely overrunning everyone everywhere. Intimidation about daunting tasks that lie before us. The anxiety, the pressures that are mounting, wanting to change what you cannot control, and we're seeing that on a national and an international scale. An overall lack of trust and deception that is rampant in our world. See, more than just in a particular city or a state or even a singular nation, these devastating attributes define our present day situation for the entire world that we now live in. Wow, no wonder Paul and Timothy implore God's holy people in the city of Philippi with the instructions that we find in Philippians chapter 3, starting in verse 17. Say devastating as you turn there. Devastating. Verse 17 says, Join with others in following my example, brothers, and take note of those who live according to the pattern we gave you. For 
As I have often told you before and now say again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is on earthly things. So as pressures mount, anxieties grow, and the future becomes more and more uncertain, these present times are showing us more clearly who has been trained according to the pattern that has been passed down to us from the Word of God and the leaders and the elders among us. See, church, these anxious times are working on God's behalf to truly set the stage for the culmination of the last days. The final heptad, for those of you who are with us in the book of Daniel, the last seven years or the last week of God's redemptive plan. First for Israel. Somebody say, first for Israel. And then for those who have been mysteriously counted together with Israel. The importance of you honing in on those who are living according to the pattern and learning to set your mind not on earthly things but on kingdom exploits, this cannot be understated, church. Church, the natural state of mind, that earthly thinking, the natural state of mind is always about the things of earth. It is constantly on the things of earth. See, and this natural state can quickly gain momentum and tumble entirely out of control. This is the kind of resistance that Moses had to deal with all the way back in Exodus 32. Everyone turn with us there to Exodus 32 and say devastating as you are finding verse 19. Verse 19 says, When Moses approached the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, his anger burned and he threw the tablets out of his hands breaking them to pieces at the foot of the mountain. And he took the calf they had made and burned it in the fire. Then he ground it to powder, scattering it on the water, and made the Israelites drink it. He said to Aaron, What did these people do to you that you led them into such great sin? Church, the natural state of mind that the people had, it caused them to spin absolutely out of control. Church, Moses was obviously a man who lived according to the pattern. Can somebody say amen? amen? This is the reason that when he came down the mountain, he saw the natural state of mind of the people that he became angry. Wow. It was righteous for Moses to be angry at the people. Do you know why that it was righteous for Moses to do so? Because God was angry with the people. We're going to encourage you this morning that men, especially in this room, it is not a righteous thing for you to ignore what's going on around you, thinking that God is always after the nice guy kind of approach. When there are people around in a natural state of thinking, it can be a righteous response for you to reflect the very anger of God. That deserved a better amen than that. Are we allowed to say amen? You better say amen. The idea that it is, that it behooves you to try to answer as gently as possible in all circumstances is not a reflection of God. Do you know what God was telling Moses right before this? He was saying, I'm going to destroy all the people because my anger is burning upon them. For Moses to come down and say his anger was burning is a perfect reflection of what God was feeling. See, it should anger us when people are walking around in a natural state of mind, something that is only set 
on earthly things, especially if you've been one who's been given the right kind of pattern to follow. He came down the mountain and he was burning with anger. It was righteous to see others operating in a natural state of mind and to call them up to a higher standard with a deep conviction that they could feel because it was real inside of Moses. Moses isn't just allowing his anger to burn at the people. He recognized that Aaron was also walking in a natural state of mind. And he calls his brother, his ministry partner, Aaron, into account. Look at verse 25 as I read. Moses saw that the people were running wild and that Aaron had let them get out of control and so became a laughing stock to their enemies. Incredible. What a failure we can see here right on the screen and right in the pages of your Bible. This is a great failure of both the people that Moses is leading and the team. Somebody say the team. The team team that Moses is working with, i.e. his ministry partner and his actual physical brother, Aaron. They experienced the sword because of their own natural thinking. The people of God experienced a plague because of their own natural thinking. How stressful and weighty must this situation have felt? The people are devastated because of their own faithlessness that has resulted in blatant idolatry. See, Aaron is devastated because of his own absence of leadership. He was intimidated by the people. And so he gave into their natural thinking and he became personally responsible. That's what the verse said. Aaron had let them get out of control. He became personally responsible for allowing idolatry to take root and to grow to these absolutely insane levels that we're seeing here. Moses himself is devastated because his own team, his own ministry partner, have just royally failed the Lord. The enemies of Israel were actually laughing at them, and because of it, the great and glorious name of the Lord was being mocked. See, where do you go from such a great failure that you encounter? How do you rightly deal with the devastating effects of such out-of-control faithlessness and being wildly intimidated by those that you were called to lead and to lead with? Man, these are the serious questions that we have to wrestle with today. But thankfully, Moses was a man of God who lived according to the pattern, and he showed us exactly what we must do. Take a look at Exodus 33. So skip down a few verses to verse 11. The Lord would speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks with his friend. Then Moses would return to the camp, but his young age, Joshua, son of Nun, did not leave the tent. The secret to Moses being a man who was able to speak face to face with God was his ability to take every devastating situation that he faced and to allow it to serve as a stirring reminder for him to pursue the face and the friendship with his God. Come on, are you guys engaging with that? Did you hear what Pastor Nick just said? That every devastating situation caused Moses to turn and pursue the very face of God. What a perfect model for us. Church, was Moses coming to face, face to face with faithlessness in this situation? Okay. Was Moses coming 
face-to-face with faithlessness? See, it was time to again come face-to-face with God as a result of that. Was Moses coming face-to-face with the intimidation towards daunting tasks and absentee leadership? Was he? He was having to look at these things, but it caused him to immediately turn to go face-to-face with God. This was and still is the only way to respond in devastating times. Verse 12, Moses said to the Lord, You have been telling me, lead these people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. You have said, I know you by name, and you have found favor with me. If you are pleased with me, teach me your ways, so I may know you and continue to find favor with you. Remember that this nation is your people. Let's allow this truth right here in verse 12 to really settle on us. Moses, the friend of God, the one who spoke to God face to face, he still needed to be taught the Lord's ways. He still needed to know him even better. He still needed to encounter the Lord's favor and to come face to face with the Lord's shalom again. Come on now. Moses had to know his God, and he had to know God more and more. Say that with me. More and more. See, in the midst of devastation that was caused by idolatry, Moses gave us the way of life that destroys that idolatry. It purifies us as his people and brings us ever nearer to his presence. You see, your first and foremost plan of attack when being faced with faithlessness and intimidation is to turn to the Lord in faithfulness and in boldness. Church, ask him to teach you. Ask him to know him better. Ask him for the strength to continue in his favor. Church, go back to your remembers. Get to re- Just like Adam was encouraging us this morning before service, he doesn't know. Go back to your remembers. Get to number seven and ask the Lord to remember that you are his inheritance. You are the very sign of his ability to transform you in an ongoing way. Church, this is such an important uh, task and an understanding that we need to have today. That the most devastating of situations are designed to cause you to turn towards the face of God. But it is in our human nature, that natural thinking, to want to be repelled from God. No, I feel bad about this. I don't understand what's going on. I don't like this feeling. So I'm going to retreat from God instead of pressing in and saying, Lord, I need you now more than ever. We have spoken face to face before, but I need to speak with you face to face now. I need to know you more right now. I knew you before, but I need to know you more. That is exactly what we're talking about. See, when you start thinking about men like this, you find that the Apostle John was another man who was also called the friend of God. He was one that that Jesus loved, and he knew what it was like to speak face to face with the Lord. And he also fully understood the ongoing need to know him better and better. Observe John's passion about knowing the Lord better as he writes 1 John chapter 5. Turn with us there. 1 John 5 and verse 18. Say devastating as you're turning. John writes, We know that anyone born of God does not continue to sin. Wow. So John the apostle is writing about that natural way of thinking. And he's saying, The natural way of thinking 
cannot and will not be allowed to remain for those who are truly, supernaturally transformed through being born of God. Look at how the verse continues. The one, the one who was born of God keeps them safe, and the evil one cannot harm them. We know that we are children of God, and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. Do you hear that? Do you hear John in a day that is just like our day? We know also that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that, somebody say, so that. So that. So that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true by being in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Dear children, keep yourself from idols. See, saints, the straightforward passion of the Apostle John proves to you what we've been saying today, namely that the whole world is actually under the control of the evil one because their minds are set on the earthly, the elemental, those natural things that abound. Their minds are only set on the earthly and natural things, yet we have been born from above, church. We have had an encounter with the Son of God so that we can live according to the pattern of returning to the Son of God and knowing Him who is truth and eternal life better and better and better. See, church, like the devastation that the people experienced in Exodus, the devastation that we experience by being outside of the Son of God and outside of the will of God must cause us to respond just like Moses did by returning to him that you might know him more and more and more. This is our process. This is our life is to continually present ourselves back to him that he might teach us, that we might know him, that we might become more and more like him as we know him more and more. Then there's this matter of verse 21. Kind of seems a little bit out of place. Let's read it again. Dear children, Keep yourselves from idols. Because John understood. No. No, he didn't just understand. John had experienced the pattern that Moses had experienced. His closing remarks for this entire letter are to ensure that we know him who is true more and more. See, John's admonition is to keep yourself from idols. What an interesting way to wrap up his entire letter here. Don't forget this apostle has just reaffirmed that those he is speaking with are those who are in him who is true by being in his son, Jesus Christ. Let me say that a different way. He's speaking to believers. Let me say that an even more specific way. He's speaking to you. His closing thought is to make sure that crushing idolatry that causes natural thinking is at the forefront of their efforts. He's saying, this is the final thing that I'm going to say to you. You better keep yourself from idolatry. The Apostle John's pretty old here as he's writing this letter. So he understands how easy it is to go from natural thinking to an all-out running wild, just like Exodus 32. And he makes sure that the last phrase of his entire letter poignantly cuts the heart of his readers, including us this morning. May we instead press on to know him who is true. May we be found in him more and more and more. Church, we're giving you the very solution, the very cure to keep yourselves from natural thinking. 
all the faithlessness that abounds and the intimidation that results from our own, listen to it, the intimidation that results from our own personal idolatry. See, this is the path and the cure of how to defeat these things today. The process of knowing him more and more, it's devastating to our own flesh. The realization that we are, in fact, undone, right, Pastor Peyton? Yeah. We are weaker than we think that we are. That realization is more than most people can or want to deal with. But it's through this process of coming to full realization, looking at our actual state, that allows us to view our God face to face. Listen to how Jeremiah speaks of this process in Lamentations chapter 3. Come on, turn with us to Lamentations chapter 3. And as you're turning there, I just can't help but reflect on what Pastor Nick is saying. It got really, really quiet in here when we started talking about that knowing how weak we are is absolutely devastating to our flesh. It's almost like we're sitting in a room full of people who are coming to grips with how undone we really are. Our actual true state, not what we want to project, not what we want to think that it is, but our actual state, and there's something that is devastating to our flesh about that. Listen to how Lamentations 3 and verse 14 speaks of this process. Are you there with us? It says, I became the laughingstock of all my people. They mock me in song all day long. He has filled me with bitter herbs and given me gall to drink. He's broken my teeth with gravel. He's trampled me in the dust. I've been deprived of peace. I've forgotten what prosperity is. So I, let, so I say, my splendor is gone and all that I had hoped from the Lord. I remember my affliction and my wandering, the bitterness and the gall. I well remember them, and my soul is downcast within me. Church, these, these are the words. These are the marks of a man who is familiar with the anguish and affliction and full accountability of his own condition and the condition of the people around him. Just like Moses. This is Jeremiah speaking and writing here. And Jeremiah understood what it is to be part of a people who have become a laughingstock because of their own natural thinking and their own idolatrous actions. See, also like Moses, though, Jeremiah is a man who knows how to live according to the pattern that God gives. And what he shares next is so very beautiful that it, it, it is hard for us to put into words what this really means. See, you know that this is a man who is knowing God more and more and more, even as he is experiencing what must have felt like life coming from the death that is around him. Listen to his words in verse 21. Yet this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed. For his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness, mighty God. I say to myself, the Lord is my portion. Therefore, I will wait for him. The Lord is good to those whose hope is in him. To the one who seeks him. 
It is good to wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. So when you're able to come to grips with your own actual state and turn to the Lord, seeking his face, you're able to come to a realization and a revelation that far exceeds mere tribal knowledge or even beautiful speech. See, what happens is, is that you actually know him who is true in these moments. You now know of him better than you did before your faithless display of natural thinking. See, you now know that you won't be consumed by your intimidated actions if you just turn back to him over and over again. You now know that his compassions don't fail you. How do you know that? Because you've done things that could have compassion fail upon you. But you keep coming back to the Lord in those moments. You're going and you're seeking his face. You're seeking to know him more and more. How is it that you know him more and more? Because you keep failing and you need him to strengthen you. You need him to teach you. You need him to be there. I've talked with you face to face before, Lord, but I still need to be taught your ways. See, you now know his faithfulness is new every single morning. See, only the ones who've experienced this can even understand the life that's there. By the way, these are the words in the midst of the book of Lamentations. Lamenting misery, sharing as deep despair as a man can. And he's saying God's mercies are new every morning. Why? Because he keeps coming back to him every morning to get the strength and the supernatural power that he needs. Our very inheritance is that we will be with the Lord in his presence forever. When your hope is in that kind of resurrection, No natural thinking can prevent you from an all-out pursuit of seeking his face. Because that's your portion. That's your inheritance. You're willing to struggle for it, and you're willing to say, as long as it takes, I'm going to get it. I'm going to receive it. Church, how can a man like Jeremiah share these incredibly uplifting verses? Maybe some of the most uplifting verses in the entirety of the canon of Scripture. He's sharing it in the midst of despair. He's sharing it in the midst of devastation. He's sharing it in the midst of lamenting what is going on in the world around him. See, but he now knew God as never before. He placed his hope in the Lord. And this was demonstrated by the struggle that we read about in the verses leading up to this. See, but it also resulted in a supernatural joy. Say that with me. Supernatural joy that rises from him in the midst of this devastation. Church, can you guys relate to what we're reading in Lamentations this morning? (laughs) We want to tell you how encouraged we are about the hunger and thirst that we can see that you and all of us are growing into. The worship that we had before we stood up to preach this morning was one of the best times that I've ever had in God's presence. We are thrilled at the display regarding your pursuit of the Lord and his presence in your own life. But we also know and we want to tell you that your need for him does not stop there. Are you guys ready for our next passage of scripture? Turn with us to Habakkuk chapter 3. 
Habakkuk chapter 3 begins a prayer of Habakkuk the prophet. And he's crying out to God to come and supernaturally rescue his people from the predicament that they've gotten themselves into. Let's look at Habakkuk chapter 3. I'm sorry. I'm just laughing about how many times it just, as I was saying that, getting themselves in their own predicament, how, how, uh, how much I resemble that remark. Look at Habakkuk chapter 3 in verse 16. I heard and my heart pounded. My lips quivered at the sound. Decay crept into my bones. Do you guys know the moment that you feel decay creeping into your bones? That feeling that you have? My legs trembled. Yet, I will wait patiently for the day of calamity to come on the nation invading us. Pastor, it sounds like the beginning of this verse. I heard and my heart pounded, my lips quivered. I've got decay entering into my skeletal system here. It sounds like Habakkuk is having a panic attack. Heart pounding. Lips quivering. My legs trembling. I bet, I bet, if he would have been in our day, Habakkuk would have been thinking, maybe I should lessen my caffeine intake at this moment. Perhaps a nap. Perhaps more water to drink. I don't know. Or maybe Habakkuk, you're experiencing the you're experiencing the increased weight of anxiety and pressure that comes with a greater depth of knowledge of what the power of his resurrection is capable of achieving inside of you. Come on now. You see, the anxieties and the pressures that Habakkuk is experiencing are causing his knowledge of the Lord to deepen his knowledge of his king to increase. And he is coming face to face with the resurrection power that is available to Habakkuk. He is supernaturally overcoming the anxiety and the pressure that is upon him. And he begins to testify of being able to wait patiently to see God's deliverance. His external circumstances did not change. His external circumstances did not change. What changed was that resurrection power had now come upon him. Come on, isn't it amazing? You can see it in his writing. Yet, yet is the very moment when the resurrection power is coming upon him. Having his circumstances remain absolutely the same, but receiving that resurrection power. Look at how it goes on in verse 17. Though the fig tree does not bud, and there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails, and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen, and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. The sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to go on the heights, and this is causing joy. Come on now, church. Habakkuk has come alive to the truth that the outcome isn't what determines your success. He's experiencing constant death. Constant death in his own expectations. You can hear it. The fig tree isn't budding. 
He's experiencing constant death through his anxiety, through his pressure, through his worry. There's no grapes on the vine. There's no olive crops. There's no food in the fields. It's like death is all around him. He's experiencing constant death of the provision that he hoped for. There's no sheep in the pen. There's no cattle in the stalls. Yet. Somebody say yet. Come on, that resurrection power fell on him and he says, yet I will rejoice. Yet I will be joyful. How is there rejoicing? How is there joy in these situations that are dominated by devastating death? He is experiencing resurrection power, and you're seeing it collected in the pages of Scripture. Do you guys remember the parable of the soils in Luke chapter 8? You have received the word of God, and even as you have gone through times of testing, you, church, You have not fallen away. The seed of the word has seemed to die in you at times. Yes, it's true. And yet, as you struggle with him, you have experienced his resurrection power. And this has brought you right back to life, stronger and more resolute than you've ever been before. Come on, let's say this a different way to make sure that everybody's getting this. It is his supernatural resurrection life that has entered into you so that you might be made strong through no ability of your own. Isn't that kind of the point of resurrection? When do you need resurrection? When you're dead. That's a good word, Pastor. You're welcome. You don't need resurrection power if you're still alive. You need resurrection power when you are dead. Come on now. He brought you out of death and he brought you right into life. He makes you strong, firm, and steadfast. He enables you to soar to new heights. But this is through the process of your own death and him producing life in you and doing that over and over again. You guys can see how good God was to Habakkuk. He brought him to the necessary events in his life that were required for him to experience death. Those seasons of testing that all of us in this room desperately need. And then God caused him to learn to fight so that he could then experience the resurrection from the dead. Listen to how Paul puts that same process that Habakkuk described for us in a slightly different way. You're going to want to turn with us to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. We're going to begin in verse 9. And we believe that you're going to hear this with some new ears here in this moment. 2 Corinthians 1 and verse 9. With the framework of Habakkuk in your heart and in your thinking. It says this. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But... That was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. Actually, on him, we have set our hope that he will deliver us again, and he'll do it again and again. Come on, church, to feel that you have received the sentence of death. It's something that should be familiar to the men and the women in this room. Can somebody say amen? Amen. The entire process of experiencing this sentence of death is to make us rely not on ourselves, but in his resurrection power. 
We want in this moment to clinch with some lie that I'm sure that you guys have experienced just like I have. Why are Paul and his companions being allowed to feel the anxiety and the pressure that they did? Is it because the Lord didn't care about them? Is it because the Lord didn't have his eye on them? He wasn't watching out for their good? Come on, answer me. The Lord is so good. How else do you think that they would learn how to rely on him besides through the anxiety, through the pressures, through the situations of extreme stress that cause your faith to be tested and your voice to cry out to the one that can help you and empower you? Church, he has delivered you from these deadly perils. And yet, he will need to deliver you again. Come on, that's just true. Church, do you love him this morning? Church, do you believe in him this morning? Are you thankful for his ways in your life this morning? This is the sign of your qualification and not of your disqualification. This is the sign of your maturity and not being perpetually stuck in an immature state. Our level of maturity is seen in how much trust and joy we display when we are in the midst of suffering and we are in the middle of circumstances that we can't control. Turn with us to 2 Samuel 16 and we're going to start in verse 5 together. Say devastating as you're turning there. 2 Samuel chapter 16 and we're going to begin in verse 5. It says this, as King David approached Bahurim, a man from the same clan as Saul's family came out from there. His name was Shimei, son of Gerah, and he cursed as he came out. He pelted David and all the king's officials with stones, though all the troops and the special guard were on David's right and left. Sounds like a bad plan. As he cursed, Shammai said, get out. Get out, you murderer, you scoundrel. The Lord has repaid you for all the blood you shed in the household of Saul, in whose place you have reigned. The Lord has given the kingdom into the hands of your son, Absalom. You have come to ruin because you are a murderer. Now, I'm not sure if you guys are familiar with the phrase of adding insult to injury. But I think this is pretty much a perfect scenario to describe what that phrase means. David's son, Absalom, has built a conspiracy that is now a fully formed coup d'etat. That was for you, Bosch. A coup d'etat that was set to overthrow David's kingship. David has fled the palace and all of the people, I mean, the whole countryside were weeping along with David as he has basically this procession of shame as he is walking away only with his belongings and the people who still want to follow them and they are walking away from the palace that God had granted him. Adding insult to injury of a son overthrowing his father in such a public fashion is a man from the clan of Saul named Shimei who begins to pelt David with rocks and more painfully with curses and accusations of David as being a scoundrel, a murderer, and one who the Lord is now 
repaying for bloodshed. See, church, the brash nature of these insults are done in plain sight of everyone. I mean, David was basically flanked by the secret service agents of his day, but Shemai lets the curses and lets the stones fly nonetheless. Verse 9 goes on to say, Then Abishai, son of Zeruah, said to the king, Why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? Let me go over and cut off his head. Thank God for Abishai, right? David and his men did not deserve this kind of treatment. Shemai should never have been cursing the king of Israel or pelting the king and his men with stones. Abishai had the right idea. Didn't he? Verse 10. But the king said, what does this have to do with you, you sons of Zeruah? If he is cursing because the Lord said to him, curse David, who can ask, why are you doing this? David then said to Abishai and all his officials, my son, my own flesh and blood is trying to kill me. How much more than this Benjamite? Leave him alone. Let him curse for the Lord has told him to. Ugh. I guess Abishai didn't have the right idea. See, David even went as far as to proclaim that the Lord was directing the devastation that he and his men were experiencing through Shemai's treatment of them. Saints, we have some maturing to do yet. The participation in these devastating trials and difficulties, especially the ones that you don't have any ability to control, they are going to be our joy and crown. See, we are going to learn to participate in the sufferings that our king has actually apportioned for us. But in order to do that, we must not give way to the options that we see that would get us out of the very devastation that God wants us to be in. There's always an option to get out of there. Always. Like agreeing with an Abishai to just cut his head off. Just end fix it. the situation immediately. Just end it. You know what we're talking about, church. The job that God gave me is devastating at times. It's devastating to me. So I'll just take the other job opportunity that popped up. All right. That first one's a little bit of some low-hanging fruit. <laughs> the next one's better because... This is one that devastated me from this past week. I know that working in a team can be devastating at times. It hurts my flesh, and my flesh does not, not like, like it. it. So this week, I decided to just keep my mouth shut about certain details and decisions that I didn't want to have to bring to the group to decide together. Can anybody relate to that? Instead of desiring to have the opportunity to participate in the sufferings of Christ, I backed off so that my participation wouldn't even be an option. And I showed all my brothers that I didn't trust them to be able to make a godly, unified decision together about my family. Real life. See, church, when you're spending all of your time trying to change your circumstances so that you can feel strong on your own, so that you can get away from the feeling of weakness. 
you are missing the supernatural empowerment that comes in the trial, that comes in the suffering, that comes in the pain, that actually comes in the circumstance that God has already allowed you to be in. Instead, we're going to let maturity be on display as we trust and as we walk about with overwhelming joy. See, this is what Paul and Timothy are teaching the church in Colossians chapter 1 and verse 24. Now I rejoice. Now I rejoice in what I am suffering for you. And I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions. For the sake of his body, which is the church. <laughs> Don't be offended by how painfully, I mean, don't be offended by how beautifully, Peshat, this verse is. Now I rejoice in what I am suffering for you. See, because Paul and Timothy are both mature believers, they're looking, they're longing to fill up in their flesh the necessary suffering and affliction that allows for their growth and the growth of the entire body, the entire church. Ah, you guys thought that the body can only build itself up just by each part doing its work. While that statement is absolutely true, you have missed a greater truth along the way. You can rejoice in what you are suffering because you now know that it is also for the benefit of your brothers. And it is the very thing that builds up the body of Christ. You rejoicing in suffering and not wanting to change it and not wanting to escape from it builds up Christ's body, which is the church. Church, suffering is not something to be avoided. It's not just something to be endured when you can't avoid it. Suffering is what we joyfully choose to participate in. We fill up our lives with it because there's no other mature way to even consider about suffering. Listen to Hebrews 11:24. By faith Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a short time. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead to his reward. See, Moses chose to be mistreated and so must we. As a matter of fact, God's people are always have to choose to be mistreated because that proves that we're regarding the curses of Shammai and the disgrace for the sake of Christ, a treasure that is worth more than all the world could possibly offer us. Let me just put it pashatly for us this morning. Quit trying to change your circumstances. Amen. Quit trying to change your circumstances. Grow up and joyfully choose suffering so that he can reward you with his power and with his presence, church. His power and his presence are your inheritance. Come on, don't you want to know how to do what Pastor Nick just said? Well, then turn with us to John chapter 7. And we're going to get a beautiful, beautiful revelation here. John chapter 7, and we're going to begin in verse 1. 
it says this. After this, Jesus went around in Galilee. He did not want to go to Judea because the Jewish leaders there were looking for a way to kill him. Wow. After this, I love the way this starts. After Jesus has laid down the gauntlet in John 6 for those who were disciples but who did not want to identify with Jesus' teaching about the necessity of death in order to experience resurrection power. Jesus was actually made the decision not to travel in Judea because of the Jewish leaders' plots to kill him. This was not because Jesus had a fear of losing his life. He was longing to lay down his life. But he knew that his time, the 173,880 days, had not quite come to completion yet. Look at verse 2. But when the Jewish festival of tabernacles was near, Jesus' brothers said to him, Leave Galilee and go to Judea, so that your disciples there may see all the works that you do. No one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. Since you're doing these things, show yourself to the whole world. For even his own brothers did not believe in him. See, as we're getting to the Feast of Sukkot, his brothers, I mean, think about this. The brothers begin to counsel Jesus as to what he should do. Are you, are you with us here? We even have a, a slide to help refresh your memory on the brothers that we're talking about here. They don't believe in him, but they're trying to give advice on what Jesus should do. I mean, there's no at all parallels with what family members do to us. <laughs> Don't believe in him, but are trying to tell you how to walk out your faith. I mean, that has nothing to do with any of us. Definitely not. We better move on to our slide, Pastor. <laughs> this is a slide refreshing your memory about the history of Jesus and his brothers. In Mark 6.3, we're reminded that his brothers are James, Joseph, Judas, or Jude, and Simon. In Mark 3.21, we know that these are the brothers that were saying that he was out of his mind. And in Mark 3, verse 31 through 35, these are the brothers that were calling out for him to ignore ministry and to pay attention to them. Okay, so these are the brothers that we're seeing in John 7 that are giving really, really bad advice to Jesus. They're saying, go to Judea, they say, even though there are people that are plotting to kill you there. That's where you ought to go hang out. <laughs> Your disciples need to see the works you do. Likely, some of the same disciples that just left in chapter 6 because they were offended and they did not trust in him to begin with. Uh, Jesus, you should really kind of go public with this whole thing you got going on. These same brothers were operating in a special kind of deception. They're saying you should go public with what you do while they do not personally believe in what he is doing. <laughs> that is a special kind of deception. Listen to the takeaway that we have here. There's a sure way to expose those who don't really trust the plan that God has. There's a sure way to expose those who are practicing deceit. Require death of them. Require their lives of them. Make them lay down their own lives, just as Jesus did. And this necessity of death will always mark a real separation. See, 
as you know, we have good news about the brothers of Jesus. These brothers finally did get the revelation of the necessity of their own death after Jesus' crucifixion. They are present with the apostles in Acts chapter 1. They're joining in constant and consistent in prayer. With this in mind, let's turn to a book of the Bible written by one of the brothers of Jesus. Turn with us to the book of Jude. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James. Jude's a brother of Jesus and a brother of James. But in verse 1, Jude only claims familial identity with James. Wow, that same man who is trying to coerce Jesus into a mental institution, to coerce Jesus into being a public figure, into going into the region of Judea and to his own death, has been so transformed that he doesn't even claim the status of being a natural blood brother of Jesus. Instead, he only classifies himself as a servant of Jesus. Look at how the verse continues on. To those who have been called, who are loved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, mercy, peace, and love be yours in abundance. Dear friends, although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I felt compelled to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to God's holy people. Everybody say, contend for the faith. Jude, who was fighting against the Lord, is now teaching people and calling them to his side that they might contend for the faith. Pastor Nick is going to walk you through a slide to help us really get the full power of contend for the faith. Contend for the faith. This word contend is Strong's number 1864. You can see that there's this family of words here that all relate to one another. They all have the same root. The highlighted one is what's in this passage. Look just below it. It says, this group, rare in the LXX and in the New Testament, is used frequently in relation to the stadium. To the stadium. Jude, one of the brothers of Jesus who was encouraging him to go to Judea to his death, was so transformed that he was now urging the church of Jesus Christ to not be afraid to become like Jesus in his death, even if it meant going to the stadium. What made a man like Jude, who didn't believe in the deity of Jesus when he was looking at him with his own natural eyes, become one who was compelled, calling brothers to his side, like brothers in arms, to fight and die for the faith. See, it's because Jude got the revelation that we all must die just like Jesus did. Jude was able to put away his own lack of trust in the reality of who Jesus was. He was able to put away the deception that he employed and has now been transformed because he willingly and joyfully is contending. We're talking about contending to the death for the reality of the kingdom. Let's see how Jude ends his letter. Let's go to Jude in verse 24. It says this, To him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. Before I finish this out, 
Think about the man who's speaking this and the revelation that he got. To him who is able to keep you from falling. Can you imagine how many times Jude is going over in his mind the things that he said against Jesus, fighting against his own brother, and now he's going, man, we got to give glory to the one who can keep you from falling. He kept me from falling. I was fighting against him. I was dead in my own sin, and yet I know he can keep you from falling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, be glory, be majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Not Jesus Christ, my big brother. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, before all ages now and forevermore. Church, how is it that he is able to keep you from falling? It's because you've already died with him. Church, how is he able to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy? It's because you have died with him many, many, many times. Church, we have just a few minutes together. We're going to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 7. It says this, but we have this treasure in jars of clay. To show that this all-surpassing power is from God and it's not from us. I want to tell you about an experience from my week this week. How I've been like Jude. Trying to avoid the fact that my death was not only imminent, but required in an iterative process. Church, I was having struggles this week about the own, my own jar of clay kind of situation. I like the treasure that's, that's all-surpassing, but the jar of clay, me feeling weak and fragile, see, I want to have the treasure without the feeling of weakness. I want to be filled with the power of God without the frailty that comes from being a jar of clay. One teeter away from breaking. See, I want to be identified with the supernatural power of resurrection without the prerequisite death that must precede that power. Man, I'm struggling this week. I'm distracted. I'm, I'm all over the place. You know why? It's because I don't want to actually have to stop and die again in that moment. Is there another way? Is there another path? Do I really have to be a jar of clay? Because I'd really just rather find the treasure. Not realizing how weak I've been, how distracted I've been, how fickle my own feelings can be. Church, I'm learning to embrace this death process as never before. This is how the treasure of an all-surpassing resurrection power is proven to be from God and not from me. This helps me to not rely on myself, but on the one, the God who actually gives resurrection power. Listen to how necessary and beautiful the rest of the passage is with that in mind. Verse 8. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being given over to death. Always. For Jesus' sake, so that his life may be revealed in our mortal body. 
So then death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. Church, we are alive, but we are constantly being given over to death for the sake of Jesus Christ. See, when we are constantly being over to death, we're able to have his life revealed. Not sometime in the sweet by and by, but right now in our own mortal bodies, in the devastation of the days that we're in. We've got a, a slide to put back on the screen, and you'll remember this slide from the beginning of our sermon. Devastating days. But... Instead, this is actually about you. We are experiencing struggles that are not just in our nation, not just in the world at large. They're in you. Your faithlessness, your intimidation, your anxiety, your pressures, your wanting to change what you just can't control. Your lack of trust in your deception, they can all be very, very, very devastating. We started this message in Philippians 3, verse 17. And the solution to that is just a few verses ahead in verse 10. We have it for you on a slide. In Philippians 3 and 10, listen to what is being said to this church today. I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain the resurrection from the dead. See, what we learn from this passage is we have to know Christ. Like Moses, I need to know Christ more and more. I need to speak with him face to face. Like Habakkuk, I need to know I need to experience a daily walk in the power of his resurrection. Like David, I need to participate in his sufferings, joyfully so that I will learn to rely on him. Like Jude, I need to become like him in his death, contending for the faith, just like the example that he laid out for us. In Philippians 3, in verse 17, we want to end exactly where we began today. In Philippians 3 and 17, it says this. Join with others in following my example, brothers, and take note of those who live according to the pattern we gave. For as I have often told you before, and now say again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is on earthly things. As pressures mount, as anxieties grow, and the future becomes more and more uncertain, these present times are showing us more clearly who has been trained according to the pattern that has been passed down for us from the Word of God and from the leaders and the elders among us. Church, the importance of you honing in on those who are living according to the pattern, learning to set your mind not on earthly things but on kingdom exploits, it cannot be understated because it is the solution of what we need. Keep reading in verse 20 for our final passage. But our citizenship is in heaven. But our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control 
will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Church, our citizenship is in heaven with our king. We have been born again through the living and enduring word of God. We are a part of his people. We've been born again into his nation. This sermon has been about the devastation of a nation, the devastation of God's nation, the one that you and I have been grafted into. That's the devastation of the nation that we're speaking about this morning. We're fully aware of the devastation happening all around us and the devastation that you yourselves have been experiencing as of late. But we are telling you this morning that this is ordained by our faithful king. See, while the rest of the world is helpless and hopeless, you have what the rest of the world does not have. You have the living and enduring word of God at work in you and the spirit of holiness who guarantees the resurrection life that is to come in you. As we close today, this altar is going to be a very clear call this morning. I'm going to say it this way. If you've been like me this week, faithless to live as a weak jar of clay, resisting the daily, hourly death that is required for his all-surpassing power to be seen, then this altar is for you. If you've been like me this week, trying to run away from the devastation, resorting to natural thinking, instead of turning to know him more and more, this altar is for you. Stand up as we pray. Father, we thank you for the kingdom deposit that has been placed inside of us. Father, we have your word of truth at work in us, mighty God. We have your spirit of holiness that guarantees the outcome of this race and a resurrection with you in your presence, mighty God. Father, you have made us more than who we are, more than the world around us, mighty God. And it is our great joy and our desire to stand up in that today, Father. Lord, we do not shy away from the death that we must experience. Lord, it's the only way that we can get to the life that we are destined to experience. Father, we give ourselves to you again this morning, mighty God, and we say, may your name be glorified from these experiences and these devastations. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.